1 through 17 in your pew Bibles. It's going to be page 927. I'm going to have J.R. Batchelor come and read the word this morning as you get your Bibles opened. All right, we're in Acts 18, 1 through 17, and I'm reading from NIV. After this, Paul left left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome, Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. While Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to the preaching, testifying, preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius, Justice, and worshiper, a worshiper of God. Cyprus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who had heard Paul believed and were baptized. <clears throat> One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed, Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Gallo was uh, proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to, the pla- to a place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways that are contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gal- Galileo said to them, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names in your own law, settle the matters among yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned to on Sothenes of the synagogue leader and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Gallo showed no concern whatever. I tell you what, we we like to pick certain people to read passages where we know there's going to be a lot of difficult words. And we always tell them the same thing. Just read it with confidence. Nobody else knows how you pronounce them. And he did great. So this is awesome. All right, so let's get back into that word, um, Acts chapter 18. Now we're going to unpack it. And I, I believe that what we're about to see is some culture shock from the Apostle Paul. So I want to I get you to try to do something. Uh, try to rehumanize Paul because he becomes dehumanized too often. He's like a super saint, a super apostle. But yet he's a man, he's a human being, just like you, just like me. So I want us to really try to approach this in a way that we can see the humanity of Paul and see how God responds to him. I think it was culture shock, and I'm going to tell you about the time where uh, in my lifetime, I think it was the greatest culture shock I've ever experienced. It was on a mission trip to Haiti. I was there for two weeks, and while I was there in Haiti, we went to this 
small town. The whole time we were in Haiti, there was a national Haitian pastor with us. And we all climbed in the back of this pickup truck. There's uh, 15 of us. And he drives us to this little town outside of Limonade. And that town, along with most of Haiti and the Dominican Republic, was celebrating St. James Festival. Let me tell you what happened. We're there. Our group, there are hundreds and hundreds of Haitians. And everybody is gathered and thronging in front of the local Catholic church big stone church that had a portico or a porch that was all made out of stone. And a lot of the Haitians that were gathered there were holding up candles that were burning. And the ones that were holding up candles that were burning, our Haitian pastor friend told us, were people who were hoping and praying that they would be filled with a demon. They wanted a demon because then they would have power to overcome poverty. Well, out of the church comes the Catholic Church. I have pictures of all of this. I was going to try. They're so low quality back in the late 80s. It wouldn't translate well up on the screen. But we, out, of the, out of the church came the Catholic priest side by side with the local witch doctor. And they begin working the people up to a frenzy, and the hair on the back of my neck is going up, on my arms is going up. You could feel the spiritual tension in the air, and people are chanting, and they are, they are jostling each other. They are, some are praying and fervently crying, and when they get to the climax of the worship, the signal would go out from the witch doctor and the priest for them to go over to the local nearby mud pits. They would go into the mud pits. They would writhe around the mud, being possessed by demons. Meanwhile, there are tables all around the mud pits with alcohol and liquor and food. This was the festival. And we're in the middle of this. All of a sudden, the pastor looked at our team and said, we need to go now. Because none of us had really noticed we were so drawn in by this spectacle of, of culture shock that people began looking at us, leering at us, beginning to move towards us. He worms our way through the, all of us through the crowd into the waiting pickup truck to leave. It was getting increasingly hostile and dangerous. Now, in a nation or in a country where the Haitians are some of the most beautiful, kind, generous people I have ever met in my life. On that day, in that town, they were anything but. I had never experienced anything like that before or since. That was culture shock. And I think what we're going to see today is that similar, different, but similar culture shock in the Apostle Paul. And what we're going to look at are three points. The mission before the church is daunting. We are better together, and our God is always with us. Let's peel that apart. Let's unpack it. Number one, the church, or rather the mission of the church, is daunting. It is overwhelming. It is intimidating. Look at verse one. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There's a whole world in that little sentence. He left Athens and went to Corinth. He traveled two days from Athens west on foot, on a Roman road, 25 miles a day, they reckoned a day's journey, two days west to get to Corinth. 
It's probably, uh, if I could say crudely, roughly equivalent from going to going, you know, living in Boston to then moving to Las Vegas. Living in the culture center, the intellectual elite of the universities to Sin City, Las Vegas. That would be culture shock, and it certainly was for the Jewish apostle. Here's why. Corinth is or was a major city in Paul's day. They had, by some estimates, 600,000 people that lived there. Listen to this. 400,000 of them were slaves. And they needed them because Corinth was a land bridge. It was what's called an isthmus. It was three and a half miles wide. There was a port on one side, a port on the other, and below it was the Peloponnese Peninsula, meaning that ships would come into one port, offload their cargo. All of those slaves would carry that cargo three and a half miles to the other side, the other port, loaded onto ships to be shipped were all over the world. Otherwise, ships had to sail around that peninsula. It was incredibly dangerous. It was an incredibly long journey. So you've got the Aegean Sea, you've got the Adriatic Sea, and you've got this little land bridge called Corinth that connects the two, making it one of the most commercially successful cities at that time. And not only was it commercially booming, Corinth was the capital of the Roman province of Achaia, where the Greek epicenter was. It was politically powerful. And not only were they commercially successful and politically powerful, Corinth hosted every other year what were called the Isthmian Games, second only to the Olympics. It, was, it became then the cultural center of the province of Achaia. So now you've got all this money coming in. You've got all this power in Corinth. You've got it to be the cultural center. You've only got really one more dimension to go, and that is it was a religious center of the region of Achaia. You go into Corinth, you get on a tour bus, I'm being fictitious because they didn't have them then, and the tour guide is gonna show you no less than 12 temples to Greek gods and goddesses. And then you're gonna climb on a road that's gonna go up 1,900 feet to the top of a mountain that will overlook all of the city of Corinth to the temple of Aphrodite. That's her Greek name. Her Roman name was Venus, of which you've heard. And there, with, within that temple, which was one of the archi architectural wonders of the ancient world, were, were 1,000 priestesses. And those priestesses were prostitutes. Every day, no day off. Coming down that mountain road, down those paths into the city late afternoon were over a thousand prostitutes ready to ply their trade with sailors, slaves, political figures, anybody that would pay the money they needed to pay. And all of that money went back into the coffers of Aphrodite. You would not, I think you would be hard-pressed to find a city that was different than Jewish morality, of which the Apostle Paul was steeped than the city of Corinth. Culture shock. 
In fact, it was so immoral, the city of Corinth, that all over the Roman Empire, there arose a nickname, a term of contempt. If someone said to you, you're so Corinthian, it meant meant that it was an insult. You are an incredibly, egregiously immoral person. So the mission before Paul to bring the gospel into the city of Corinth was daunting. But as we're about to see, depravity is often a much more fertile soil for the gospel than elitism and intellectualism. Remember, he just came from Athens. There was hardly a response of the gospel there. They were just in the equivalency of Boston. He moves now to Las Vegas, Sin City, and you're going to see, as you work through this, an incredible outpouring of the power of the gospel. So I want you to look, if you would, and let's be really real. I mean, it's, I don't know about you. I, I, really, I get a lot of comments on this. I really enjoy the background of the culture that you give us in these sermons. Well, I really like it, too. I just preach the way that I like to learn. And so you might be like, wow, I never really quite knew all that about Corinth. That's really interesting. That kind of makes things a little bit make more sense. But you know what? You're just going to leave here with a little bit more information about Corinth if you and I don't get into the story as if we're living there or as we're walking in Paul's shoes. So let me help you do that, and let me help you do that through this means. Ask yourself, what is your mission? What's your mission field? And you might be tempted to go, maybe, I don't really think I have a mission field. You do if you're a Christian. And your mission field might actually be your own family. It might be your neighborhood. It might be the place that you work. It might be your school. It might be your college. It might be your team of which you play together in your sports. It might be your friend group. You all have, and I do as well, a mission field. Saturday mornings for me is when I go on my mission field. In a few more weeks, I'm going to go on a different mission field. First one is a bicycling group. The second one is a motorcycling group. And when I'm on those mission fields, I mean, I'm cocooned around Christians being a pastor almost all week. These are my ways to get out with the unsaved. And I'm on my mission field yesterday, pedaling up in Bush, Bushkill Township, when I'm engaged in a conversation with a man about the return of Christ who is a, an anarchist, really, who doesn't really believe anything of Christianity, but he'll listen to me. He still doesn't believe it, but he'll listen. So you have a mission field. I have a mission field. And it's before you. You're always on it. And I want you to really think about that for a moment. Is it not sometimes quite daunting How do you break into this mission field? How do you bring the gospel to this mission field? And you might find that you're really in the same situation that the Apostle Paul found himself. Because the question that we need to learn to ask, brother and sister in Christ, how can I be a witness to those around me? Now, when I say that to people, I invariably begin to get feedback like, well, I'm not a theologian. I'm not a pastor. I don't know how to answer tough questions. Do you realize that is absolutely far removed from what it means to be a witness? 
By the way, you never see witness as a verb in the Bible. You've got to go out and witness. You've got to be witnessing. You don't find it as a verb. It's a noun. It's our identity. It's who we are. It's who Christ has made us to be. Not only is it our purpose and our way of life, it's our identity. We are to be witnesses of Jesus. And let me help you all get some of the fear out of your heart because what it means to be a witness is to share what you know. Is that not how we use the word? If you see a car accident in front of you and the police come to you and say, did you witness that? Or are you a witness of that accident? And you say, yes, they begin asking you questions. And listen, you don't need to be an expert or a physicist to know what the ratio is of tread depth on your tire to the weight of the car in stopping distance. They're not gonna ask you any of that. You simply share what you know. Here's what I saw happen. And similarly for a Christian, you've been given influence, every one of you, with people around you that are not believers. They're going to listen to you but you've got to have the boldness to be able to say here's what I know and every week you come to church and you learn a little bit more about God and every day that you're in the Bible and you know a little bit more about God guess what you've got more to share but you don't need to outshare what you know one of the greatest lessons as we go to point number two that I have ever learned about church life was actually taught to me by National Geographic. Because while our mission is daunting, point number two, we are better together. And I learned this in the most stark way watching over two decades ago a, a herd of wildebeests on the Serengeti Plains in Africa. And the wildebeests are gathered in a circle, nose out, tail in, and in the center of their circle were all their young. And circling around the circle of wildebeests was a pride of lions. They weren't really able to bring down an adult wildebeest. They were going to try to bring down the young. I'm enthralled watching this. I'm actually, I remember praying, don't break the circle. Don't break the circle. Lord, protect those little wildebeests. And all of a sudden, the lions begin to roar. You know why lions roar? At least one reason is to inspire fear in animals and get them to break their hiding and run where they could be run down. Is that not what the roaring lion does as well by the name Satan? Well, I'm gonna tell you a little bit more about him in a moment. But here we are watching, here I am watching this episode. I'm really literally on the edge of my chair. I'm hoping that they don't break, that the wildebeest stay together. When all of a sudden, and I knew it was gonna happen, one of the adult wildebeest took off in fear and ran. And immediately, darting through that hole, that empty spot, came the lions. And all of the adult wildebeest scattered. And they began pulling the young down one by one. I was literally nauseous watching that. And it never left me. I've always gone back to that episode and realized we are better together. 
We must stay unified as Christians. Whether that's in Christian community called your church or Christian community of your life group or what we call community groups or your service teams, we are better together. But let me tell you what our enemy wants to do, that great roaring lion called the devil. His name in the Greek is diabolos. You know what that means? It means one who throws accusations against God's people. You will never find God slandering his people, never. If you hear of slander, whether it's in the workplace, in your home, your neighborhood, your schools, or even the, hall, the foyer of this church, it is never coming from God. He does not speak that language. It's always coming from the devil. That's his chosen language. And he knows it fluently. He throws accusations against God's people, and his goal is to divide them. And whether that division is in what used to be your best friend, or your marriage, or your family, or your neighbors, or your church, the devil, the diabolos, accuses and divides. It's how he attacks. But the strategy of his division, it's not always conflict. Don't reduce what he does to conflict. Sometimes his strategy is just simply to isolate God's people from one another. And I've seen it over and over, and Denise and I have battled this in our own family. There came a time when, uh, before our youngest was born and our three older children, uh, the boys were in baseball, my daughter was in softball, we ran out of parents to take them to their games we actually had a call, people in the church. We got three games going on at one evening. We can't get everybody there. Would you be willing to take one of our kids? Of course. And I would say, if you want to bring it back, great. If not, no, I can. That was a joke. We were so busy. I see that frenetic busyness in a lot of us as families, and the devil is always at work. He wants to get us too busy to get involved at church, too busy to be in a community group, too busy to really form community. Here's what I've learned as I go on, before I go on. I've seen this so much that I want to keep warning you. Every time I see people in church, Stay on the edge and the periphery of community. They never last here very long. And it always goes, almost always, through sequential stages. They don't get involved in anything. They come less frequently until they just stop coming. And then months later, I'll get some kind of a phone call or Pastor Kyle or one of our elders. Nobody reached out. Well, community goes both ways, right? We've got a shepherd well as leaders, but you've got a congregant well. You've got to be involved in community. And if you refuse to get involved in community, the devil's got you where he wants you, isolated from Christians. We are better together. I've seen people take new jobs, and now their new job leaves them too busy and too tired to really make it to church, to get to a community group, to serve, or to make disciples. Well, the devil's got them where he wants. Years ago, a couple that I married. I love this couple. I still love them. They told me they were buying a lake house. I knew exactly what was going to happen. 
The weekend they bought the lake house was literally the last weekend they ever came to this church. I knew it was going to happen. And before that, they attended faithfully. They were right on the cusp of getting involved in a community group. They bought the house, which I think is fantastic. There's nothing wrong with buying a house. But the devil got them where he wanted them, isolating from Christian community. Well, whatever the reasons are, the devil's goal is to divide and isolate Christians. But here's a truth you want to know. You cannot do the work God has for you to do alone. You cannot do it alone. We are always better together. Now, I'm going to tell you one of the greatest reasons, one of the most prevalent reasons that people isolate. And I hear this all the time, and I'm going to tell you the truth. I honestly don't blame them. I pastor them through it, but all the time I'm going, man, I get it. I get it. If you have a bad experience at church, you will find yourself extremely reluctant to get involved in Christian community. If you have a bad experience with another Christian or group of Christians, you will find it almost impossible to be willing to get involved in community. You are right where the diabolus wants you. And who better to work through difficult relational experiences than those who are children of God, who have the Spirit of God in them. If we're not willing to do that, why would the world? Now stay with this truth for a minute. Follow Paul, because you might think, well, man, I've gone all over the place. Well, let me take you back to Paul. He had just come from Athens, where he had been alone. The Bible specifically says that. Only to leave there abruptly to come to Corinth all alone, by himself. And this is the second of his missionary journeys, and it had been an exceedingly difficult one. If you remember, he and Silas and Timothy had gone to Philippi. He and Silas were beaten with rods. They were thrown into the deepest part of a dungeon. They were put into stocks. An earthquake came. The gospel went out from Paul and Silas. Many came to be saved, but then they left there for Thessalonica, and the whole city was thrown into an uproar. It was so violent, so bad, that the Christians immediately sent Paul and Silas to Berea, only to have the same thing happen in Berea. The crowd stirred up again because they hated the gospel, and Paul was then sent by himself to Athens. He's at Athens. He specifically says he's going to wait for Silas and Timothy. He's preaching his heart out to that intelligent center of the world, but no church ever started. No no great salvation response happens. Something moves him prematurely to Corinth. We don't know what it is. He had intended to wait for Silas and Timothy, but he leaves before they get there and he arrives in Corinth. And friends, he is not in a good place at all. And you might wonder, well, Tim, how do you know that? You just simply go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says it himself. I, when I came to you, brothers at Corinth, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. That didn't work out too well in Athens. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. 
So now we've got this superhuman apostle that we all tend to dehumanize, which I'm trying to rehumanize because I think he's got a lot in common with all of us. He is struggling. He is alone. He is weak. He is in fear and anxiety. And we get to see what God does for his fearful, struggling apostle. Look who he meets, verse 2. He found a Jew named Aquila, that's a man, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. We're going to talk about this husband and wife duo more in this series. But let me just say it this way. This is an unbelievably godly couple. And all of a sudden, God is bringing Paul together with other Christians. In verse 5, Silas and Timothy finally make it from Macedonia to Corinth, and they bring with them a financial gift from the churches of Macedonia. So early in 18, we see Paul tent making, meaning he is working and doing ministry part time. But now with this financial gift, he goes back to full time work, verse that you see in there. Now he's occupied with the word. See, Paul's mission was daunting, but he was better together. And we're going to see what God then does in point number three personally for his beleaguered, struggling saints. So here we go, point number three. Our mission is daunting. We are better together, and our God is always with us. Look what he does in verse nine. And friends, I hope you listen to this carefully because God may do this for you. And whether it's a vision in the form of a dream, whether it's a card that you get in the mail from a Christian brother or sister, whether it's a phone call, whether it's something from God's word, God will speak personally to the deepest struggles of your heart. Verse 9, do not be afraid, God says to Paul, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. Now I want you to see what, what God does not do. You know, years ago, before I tell you this, years ago, right next door is the um, counseling, Cornerstone Counseling Center ministry that we started years ago. We started it because we had eight master's level counselors in our church, and that was a building that we were trying to figure out and discern from God, how are we going to use it for your glory? And we came up, I, I gave the idea to the elders and the board and the congregation absolutely loved it. We put in several hundred thousand dollars and we started that counseling center and then we partnered it out so that it, we would be protected from a lawsuit if one came. And we started that because myself, I'm a master's level counselor, that's my background as well, and I realized we have so many people in this area that are struggling, and the number one struggle that I've read about that people go into counseling for is right now, currently, anxiety, and COVID has actually increased anxiety. Do you know that right now church statistics tell us that only 65% of the church pre-COVID has returned and 35% of them are likely never to come back. That's what we're facing. And anxiety has escalated. 
So God does not berate Paul. You should never go to someone who's struggling with fear and anxiety and belittle them. God did not do that with Paul for his fear. Rather, he spoke courage into his heart, and then he showed him the true remedy for all fear and all anxiety. And friends, I'm gonna, I hope you can hear this. If you have anybody, or if you go to anybody struggling with fear, and you give them empty platitudes like, you know what, it's all going to work out, I've been through this before, just hang on, that really does not help. You want to see the gospel solution? It's right in this verse. For I am with you. And then he gives them a promise, no one will attack you to harm you. And then he tells them, for I have many in this city who are my people. Let me work backwards. You're not alone. God's promises are for you, and God's presence is with you. That's always the antidote to fear and to anxiety. He assures them, I am with you, Paul. And I've got a future. You've got a mission. I've got a, you've got a purpose. And I've got many in this city who are my people. Keep your mouth open. And be my witness. You know, when I graduated in high school, 1984, and if you ever were to take a time machine back and ask me one question and ask me, Tim, how many Christians are in your, in your school? I know exactly what I would have told you because I said it to my youth pastor. I'm the only one. I'm the only one. And then I found out years later that I wasn't, in fact, the only one. That there were other Christians there as well, but none of us had the courage to live out loud with our faith. None of us were shining our light, yet God had his people there. And God has his people in your schools and in your colleges and at your workplaces and in your neighborhoods. And it's not until you begin to live out loud that they begin to be drawn to you and you find out, wait a minute, there's a remnant of God's people here and we are better together. We can accomplish the mission of God to be his witnesses. And we will realize once again that God is always with us. So don't be silent. Be his witness. Now, I want to help you as I close, I work towards a close. Let me help you apply this to your own life. Okay, let's take it backwards all the way to Athens, to Corinth. Because there, Paul assured those intellectualists that God ordains all things. He has given us life in this moment in history, in this part of the world, to the families that you belong to, with the talents and the abilities and your appearance and your personality. Everything you possess has been given to you by God, who ordains all things. So you can never really say truthfully that you were born at the wrong time to the wrong family in the wrong place. Your time and your place is where you are now, serving the God who loves you literally to death. And what better life is there than that of knowing God and then sharing what you know to those who don't? However, we cannot be effective in living out that mission if we isolate ourselves. Can I ask you, Cornerstone, get involved in a community group or get involved in community, both in structured 
and organic ways. Well, let me tell you about the structure before I tell you about the organic. Structured ways are our community groups, our discipleship groups, our service teams, our sound and screens teams and worship teams and welcome teams. We've got all, so many ways for you to get involved. And what you'll find is when you serve with other Christians together, you actually begin to like them. And you draw closer to them. And the walls that you had up begin to be taken down voluntarily. That's structured, but there's another way to develop community. And let me tell you this, structured community in a church won't move a church from being a friendly church to a loving church. You've got to have organic community. You know what organic community is? You want to know why there's a lot of people missing today? Because we've got nine families with their children all out camping this weekend together, something that we did not plan as a church. They planned it. It's the second year in a row they've done it. They like to be together. That's organic community. Organic community is when you call somebody that you heard had cancer and asked or had a surgery and say, can I bring you a meal? Is there any way that I could pray for you? Do you need anything? Do you need me to, to mow the lawn? Organic community is when you see somebody and say, you know what, I've been wanting to get to know you. Can we get out for a cup of coffee? Or I need to talk to somebody. I am really struggling with something. And I think you'd be a good listening ear for me. You're going to turn me back to Christ. Can we get out together? See, there are thousands of ways to develop organic community. And you'll never get structured community to turn a church from a friendly to a loving church. You've got to have organic community do it. So can I ask you to begin organically realizing and living out you're better together? We're simply better together. And if we're to successfully accomplish the vision of the church, we really need to move towards that kind of a community. Well, let me actually move you towards a story with this statement, and then I'll close. I want you to think of Jesus for a moment. I mean, let's be real. You're never going to find a mission more daunting than the one that laid before Jesus, who was sent by his father, to be born as a baby and to live for 30 years flawlessly, sinlessly, keeping the entire law, no matter how much the diabolos came and threw slander against him and, and tried to tempt him, Jesus did not give in, not even once. And he went on that cross as a sinless, spotless lamb of God. And while he's on that cross, all of the sins of everybody that's ever going to believe were piled onto him. He became the sin bearer, and the one who never knew sin tasted sin, became sin, so that those who would believe could become the righteousness of God. And he died. The most gruesome death. Now listen, here's how he died. All of his friends left him. All of his own people left him. And his father left him. He died lonely until he laid his head back onto the pillow of his father's love. And at three o'clock, life went out of his body. And he laid in that tomb for three days, part of Friday, all of Saturday, 
part of Sunday. That's three days of the Jewish reckoning. And he was risen out of that tomb as a promise to you. The moment you put your faith in Jesus, you too will have eternal life. But not just when you die, you get the eternal abundant life now. And the way you get it now is you're brought into his family and God becomes your father and he seals you with the spirit of God and he gives you a down payment of that inheritance that's come. And he got all the promises of God and all the presence of God for you. But there's never been a mission more daunting than that of Jesus. And yet he trusted in his father. You know, nearly 80 years ago, Ernest Gordon, some of you know the story, was a Scottish POW in World War II. He was captured by the Japanese and he was forced, along with thousands of POWs, to build in Thailand a railroad all the way from Burma to Siam. The conditions were so grueling, so brutal, that 393 men died for every mile of track they laid. Think of that. And Ernest Gordon, who's in the midst of all of this and survives, writes, we lived by the rule of the jungle, survival of the fittest. It was a case of I look out for myself and forget everyone else. And the weak were trampled underfoot. There was no mercy. And when he cried for help, anybody that was dying, we averted our heads. We had long since resigned ourselves to being derelicts. We were forsaken men, and now even God had left us. They get done with one of their work days when one of their Japanese captains rushed forward yelling. They always counted the tools at the end and he counted one shovel short. He began yelling at all the POWs who took the tool. No one came forward and he screamed in rage, you're all going to die. He lifted his gun and began to pull on that trigger when a man, one of the POWs, stepped Forward and without a word, that Japanese captain clubbed him to death. True story. They were marched back to camp. The tools were counted again, and they found and they discovered that there was a miscount. There, would, there had been no tool missing. And it spread through the entire camp of animalistic hatred for each other among the POWs, all of a sudden it spread that one man gave his life, sacrificed his life so that they could live. And now all of a sudden Gordon says there was still hatred, but now there was also love. There was death, but now there's life. God had not left us. He was with us, calling us to live the divine life and fellowship. And the entire camp was transformed. All because a man gave his life for others. How much more when that man is the son of God? Who had the most daunting mission ever given, was rejected, put to death by the very people that he came to save and who experienced the utter forsaking of God. He suffered friends so that you would not have to. He died so that you could live. He was forsaken so that you could be accepted. And he promises to be with you all the days of your life. You will never experience the forsaking of God. 
And it leaves me to ask, have you trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you put your faith in the Son of God truly, not just as a religious concept, as a personal transaction? I am a sinner, but I know, I know that Jesus died for me, and I can have life. My last thing I'm going to tell you, and it'll take seconds, is that you will find that there is a man named Sothenes beaten at the end of this story that we read from Acts 18. It's not the end of the story for Sothenes, though. Because if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, you're going to find that he is now with Paul on the mission field as his co-laborer. God did not even leave Sothenes and he will not leave you either. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for the promises that we have, Lord, of your presence. And Lord, how your presence is the key to everything. And Lord, how we are told and instructed to be a witness of Jesus Christ wherever we are, Lord, to be your witness, to share what we know about you. And Lord, today we know maybe a little bit more that we've got a little bit more to share because now we could talk to people about this story from Acts 18 and how you have promised to never leave us and that you are always going to have people around us. Lord, we are simply better together. And we trust you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.